Good evening. Uh, for those of you who do not know me, my name is Father Aaron Williams. I'm the parochial vicar at St. Joseph in Greenville, Mississippi. But I grew up here in Jackson. I went to St. Joe in Madison, and uh, my parents live right around the corner from here. So I'm very appreciative to Father Albine and to Father Jason for allowing me to be here tonight in my hometown to speak with all of you. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? For the past few weeks, we have been hearing passages from St. John's Gospel, taken from the section that's usually termed the Bread of Life Discourse, which in fact is one long sermon of sorts delivered by our Lord following the miracle of the multiplication of the loaves, a passage that we heard just a few short weeks ago. But despite the fact that this discourse is long enough that the church is able to divide it into six weeks, thus causing priests to cringe at the idea of finding six different ways to speak about the Eucharist. Despite this, the fact of the matter is that the question which John records from the mouth of the Jews is one which still persists in today's time, in the Christian religion, and indeed even in the Catholic Church. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? The remarkable thing about this question, however, isn't what it is asking, but that it is asked at all. Christians are able to believe in all sorts of things, angels, a trinity of three persons, the resurrection, but for some reason, this one sticking point in Christianity has lasted through the centuries. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? How? How can he give us the Eucharist? Of course, Christians are able to believe in all those other things, which most Christians are willing to accept, then it isn't really that hard to answer this question. How? Well, quite simply, because he is God, and God can do those sort of things. But that isn't really the issue, is it? No one is really questioning if God can do that sort of thing. The heart of this question, at least to today's Christians, is more like how can the church claim to give us Christ flesh to eat? And that's an important question, isn't it? After all, our Lord himself promises, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life within you. So we're not really dealing with the question of the Eucharist, but the question of the real presence of our Lord, body, blood, soul, and divinity, and the consecrated elements of bread and wine. That issue can sort of be set aside, really, in place of the underlying question of how can the church claim to perform this miracle? day in and day out upon that altar. After all, St. Thomas Aquinas proclaims in his great Eucharistic hymn, this the truth that each Christian learns. Bread, and to his flesh he turns, and to his precious blood the wine. The reality of the Eucharist is something which is taught to the youngest members of our faith. But perhaps it would be helpful if in addition to this great doctrine, the center and the beating heart of our faith, the Holy Eucharist, if in addition to that we taught people about the priesthood and about the Holy Mass, that would really give us the how to this whole issue. And as a sort of side effect, perhaps if we took a moment to think about the priesthood and about the Mass, we might also have a bit of insight into why a young man might be willing might be more than willing to give himself to a radical way of life in the holy priesthood. You know, sometimes a good Christian gets this sudden urge to read the Bible, 
And they pick it up, and they open it to the book of Genesis, and they start reading, and they hear about creation and about Abraham and Joseph, and they get to the book of the Exodus, and they remember about when they watched Cecil DeMille's 1950s film, The Ten Commandments, or maybe the cartoon version, The Prince of Egypt. And then about halfway through the book of Leviticus, they start paging ahead. First a few chapters, then they skip all of Numbers and Deuteronomy, and they pick up the story when they get to the book of Joshua. And why is this? Because when you hit the halfway mark in the book of Leviticus, you start to get immersed in this long list of laws. And at first you might find it interesting, and then you tell yourself these laws don't affect you, and it's time you get back to the story. But the truth of the matter is that these laws are extremely important, as in fact they were the first codified system of laws that God gave man, gave to man in order to bind him to them as a means of communicating his own love to his people, and therefore their own love toward God. And central to this system of laws was the law of sacrifice. And we really don't have enough time for a discussion on those laws, but suffice it to say that for generations of Hebrews, sacrifice and religion were the same thing. You couldn't separate them. And to have sacrifice, you had to have priests. And then Christ the Lord enters the picture, and he gathers to himself 12 men, the apostles, and teaches them his way. And eventually, he begins to confer on them some of his authority. And you see them in Scripture going about performing healings and casting out demons as our Lord himself does. And then a moment comes, the night before his death in Calvary, when he gathers these 12 around him in a small upstairs room on the south side of Jerusalem, and he gives them something new. Take this, all of you, and eat of it. Take this, all of you, and drink from it. Do this in memory of me. I hate to blow over what's really several years' worth of theological studies right here, but what our Lord is doing in this moment is giving the apostles their new sacrifice, which will be ratified by his supreme act of love and sacrifice on the cross the next morning. And that's the answer to Christ's promise, that not a letter of the law will disappear. Yes, not a single letter in the second half of the book of Leviticus is going to disappear. But it will be fulfilled. It will be radically transformed in the new covenant given to us in Christ, given to us particularly here in the Holy Eucharist. All those acts of sacrifice, those bulls and turtle doves and cakes and oil, those acts are bound up here in this bread and wine. Except while the sacrifices of the old covenant were mere shadows of the new, this one sacrifice, God's love, is communicated to all humanity. Indeed, God becomes so close to man that he enters into him in holy communion. So the Eucharist, when considered through the lens of Calvary, is but an extension of the grace of the cross into our present day. Each day, at every Mass, on every altar, Christ crucified is represented to us in the bread and the wine. He isn't sacrificed again. His one sacrifice is made present to us in the bread and the wine, such that the altar becomes the cross. And the little fragment of bread held aloft between the sinful hands of the priest, that little fragment of bread becomes our Lord. And our Lord becomes our food.
Amen, amen, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life within you. But in order for this most sacred mystery to be handed down and to be given to us generation after generation from the time of the apostles to the time of St. Thomas Aquinas to our present day here at 4000 West Tidewater Lane, in order for that to happen, Christ needed a minister. Christ needed a priesthood. Just as the sacrifices of the Old Covenant needed priests, so too does our sacrifice today need a priest. For the priest stands in the place of our Lord, just as the apostles did after our Lord's glorious ascension into heaven. He receives the authority which was handed down by our Lord to the apostles, and he receives it because it was passed down from the apostles to generations of bishops and to generations of priests. How can the church give us the flesh of Christ to eat? The truth is she can't, and she doesn't. Christ himself gives us his flesh to eat, because Christ himself acts in the person of the priest at every Mass. It is he, and he alone, who performs this miracle, because only Christ can do this. And so at each Mass, after the priest has prayed for a while with the text of the Missal, he stares down... Uh, at the little fragment of host between his hands. And the pace of his speech slows, and he bends low, and he speaks those sacred words, not his own words, but God's. This is my body. Why would a young man wish to give his life to the priesthood? He could be a counselor anywhere else. He could be a preacher, a teacher, anywhere else. But in the holy priesthood, a man shares a privileged relationship with the Lord, because the Lord entrusts his own authority to him to let him speak in his name. And this is how all the sacraments occur. In each act, the priest speaks not in his own person, but in the person of Christ. Right now, the church needs more than just a few guys to think about the priesthood. I know we pray for more priests. Most parishes pray for more priests. But there are two things I would like to ask of you. First, stop praying for more priests. We don't need just more priests, warm bodies. We need good men. We need the kind of men that you're willing to let marry your daughter. We need good priests. Pray for good priests. We need more good priests in the church now more than ever. We need good men to step forward who are not only willing to take on this burden, but to have the strength to carry it. And secondly, and this especially goes to families and particularly to parents, When a young man proposes that he might have a vocation to the priesthood, or simply that he's wishing to consider it, give him your support. For many reasons more than one, choosing to go to seminary today is a difficult decision. Most guys who make this choice face a tremendous lack of support from their parents, firstly, and from their families. Some face the ridicule or at least the misunderstanding of their closest friends. Others see the problems in the priesthood today and wonder why they would want to get involved at all. And still others understand the beauty of the priesthood and find themselves significantly inadequate to take on that mantle. And for all those reasons, we need to show these men our support. The priesthood is a beautiful and fulfilling life, but it takes tremendous courage to make that step. And I know that I and Father Nick and your priest here at St. Francis, we are here to help you make that step. We are here to provide you support to any man who wants to consider a vocation to the priesthood. 
Please be that support as well. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood, says the Lord, has eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? The Holy Priesthood. <laughs> 